All right, welcome back to another episode of ICU Doc Talk. I have not done an episode in a while, so apologies about that. Uh, I'm gonna. A lot of it has to do with uh, I. My time is limited. I I enjoy talking and doing this podcast, but um, and yeah, my time is limited. But honestly, sometimes I get bored talking to myself, <laughs> and I'm like, I don't have anything to say. Nobody nobody cares what I don't. So uh, the reason I bring this up. It, if uh, if you haven't heard from me, if you like the podcast and you listen to it, and you haven't heard from me in a while, just email me and be like, "Hey, talk about this." And if and uh, you know, because I can find, as you know, I can find little moments of time here and there. You know, if if you give me an idea and it's like, and I and it it seems like I might have something to contribute to that idea, then I'm more likely to record a podcast and put it out there. Um. Anyway, today I want to talk about uh, anxiety, patient anxiety. And the patient experience in medicine, which uh, is something that sometimes people in, that work in healthcare uh, like discount. They don't really, they don't care about. Um, and there's a couple of reasons why. There's many reasons why patient experience is, is important. There's and what I, what I mean by patient ex- experience is how. As as a patient navigates a healthcare system, what is their experience navigating that healthcare system? Is it good? Is it bad? Is it benign? Did they have a great time? Well, I don't know if anybody has a great time in healthcare system, but was it? Are they positive about it? Are they negative about it? Um, and what does their insp- experience entail? Well, it's obviously working with staff. It's working with scheduling. Um, th- there's many things that make up. Uh, a patient experience. One of the reasons that it matters is that you don't want people just the experience alone, right? You, it, it's not good for people to have bad experiences in medicine. You just by virtue, just the, the virtue of you want you want someone to have a good experience as they are, right? Getting therapy for whatever it is that they have, right? There's that alone. That's good. That's desirable. But then their experience affects their experience with healthcare, how they interface with healthcare affects their health. Um, it affects their future um, interfaces and their future, the way they, they talk with physicians or, or other healthcare providers. And it may even affect if they even come back to a hospital or if they even come back to a doctor. That, that is one of the reasons that it is so important to focus on patient experience. I don't care about like, let me just make it clear. I do not care about uh, I don't, well, I, I don't know if I want to say I don't care about it, but there's these like, you know, pa- uh, patient satisfaction surveys and stuff like that. And that's important and things like that. I'm not talking about this from like an administrative standpoint, like, uh, you know, a, like a bean counter, like a bureaucrat being like, oh, you know, this doctor got only rated six with their patients or something like that, whatever. I, I'm not talking about that. I'm, I'm talking about the actual patient experience and concern for their well-being and their health. And how if they have a negative experience, and there's many reasons you can have a negative experience, right? Um, that it impacts their health. And that can impact their life. And that can impact how long they live, right? So it has tons of, a, has, has a lot of, um, what's the word, consequences. So, and patient anxiety has a lot to do with that as well. So most people, like, don't like, you know, I don't know about most. Many people don't like to be in hospitals, don't like to go to the doctor. Uh, and there's many reasons for that, right? There's childhood trauma because, the, you know, someone forced them down and put a put a needle in them when they were when they were five, and they were totally traumatized by that for the rest of their lives, and they have needle phobia. 
just the other day, I, there was like a seven year old man, totally, uh, you know, with it guy. And he was like, I am deathly. And he was getting surgery and he's like, I don't care about the surgeries, whatever. I'm not afraid about that. He's like, I'm deathly afraid of, of getting an IV. And he's like, the reason is I, I know because he shared experience when he was young and that his, his mom was crying or wasn't there or something. I'm kind of forgetting the details, but he had a trial childhood traumatic experience and it, it completely affected his approach to, you know, how he thinks about needles and he has a phobia for it. And he was totally rational about it. Right. He was like, I know it's a phobia. I know it's totally irrational, but he's like, it's just, it's just what it is. He's like, I pass out, you know, I pass out. Uh, every time, anytime, anytime someone tries to put a needle in me. And so I listen and I want to, that's what I want to talk about is like the approach to patients like this. And I have a couple stories and stuff that I'll probably share. Um, but with this guy, for example, um, I listened to him and, and he was, and I was like, look, you can pass out. <laughs> I'm like, you're in the pre-op area. And if you want to pass out, you know, I'm, I was like, for one thing, I was like, I will put in your IV. Right? There's many people that put in IVs, and I'm not saying I'm like the, the best at putting in IVs. But uh, there's like, you know, uh, the pre-op nurse, there's many people that can put in IVs. But I'm, I'm his anesthesiologist, and I want him to, I'm trying to foster trust with him in a short amount of time. And I was like, I will, I will put in your IV right now. And, and I was like, you can pass out. I was like, I'll give you permission to pass out. That's fine. Because he was afraid of passing out. I was like, you're in a safe monitored um, area. I mean, we're looking at your vitals. And if you pass out, I was like, and I explained to him, it's, it's something we call a vasovagal response where your sympathetic response or your fight or flight response just goes a little haywire for a moment. And, um, and then you get the, the, the vagal response that, that tries to, that puts the brakes on it. And that's why you pass out. And I'm like, it's brief and it's, and it's, it's actually not that big of a deal. Um, now I'm totally saying this tongue in cheek. I know it's not within his power to like pass out yay or nay. Like it's not, it's not a voluntary thing. But I think by saying it, it helped relax him, right? The stakes, it decreased the, the stakes for him. And uh, I was like, it's fine. I'll pass out. I'm like, I'm, I'm going to bring a needle. I'll poke you. And I was like, do you want to know more information about it? Do you want to know, do you want to know uh, what's going on as I'm doing it? Do you want me to talk to you about the needle or do you want me to? And he was like, what? He's like, just, just don't tell me about it. Just tell me what it's done. So I was talking to him and I put in the IV and we were talking the whole time and it was over. And he was like, oh, I was like, that's it. It's done. Like, let's go back to surgery. So that doing that, it was not a lot of effort for me to do, right? That's not a big deal. Um, I, I think a lot of time that what a lot of healthcare workers and physicians are like, you know, roll their eyes at patients that are not all of them. Of course, I'm, I'm like focusing on like the, you know, people, the, the, the extreme, you know, they roll their eyes like, oh, well, you just, just, you know, act like an adult, you know, we don't want to do that. We do have to do this for kids. Are you a kid? Whatever the effort, the extra effort that someone like me has to put in to make a patient like that feel better is minuscule. It's minuscule. It's nothing. It's nothing for me. And it's everything to them, everything to them. They're some of the most grateful patients, you know, when I'm done with surgery with them or whatever I see in the post-operative unit, someone that are like gushing with gratitude. I, it was just the tiny little things the tiny little extra things that I did to make them feel heard, make them feel validated and to go out of my way, not even out of my way, nothing. This isn't out of my way. This is, this is routine care, um, customizing how you, inter- how you interact with patients. Anyway, they're the most grateful patients that I interact with. Right. So here, let me tell you another story. So I had a, I had a patient 
um, who I did anesthesia for. And everything went fine. And then I get an email from like a, like a quality control, whatever, uh, uh, like a patient complaint department, right? And the, the patient was very concerned about what happened to her under anesthesia. Very, very concerned. And, uh, and I got a call about this like a week later after it happened. And I was like, yeah, I kind of, you know, I, re- I do lots of anesthetics, right? Sometimes it's hard to remember everything that I do. But I brought up the patient's chart. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I remember this. And I'm like, there was, and in my mind, and I haven't talked to the patient yet or anything, right? In my mind, I'm like, there was absolutely nothing wrong with anything that happened in this operation. It was all very routine, like complete, totally routine. Um, so I wasn't concerned from a standpoint of like, oh, I, you know, I've done something wrong or someone else in the room done something wrong. I, I didn't think, I wasn't concerned at the offset, but I hadn't talked to the patient yet. Of course, I call the patient. That's what you must do. If you're ever, if you're in a, ever in a position like mine and you have a patient that is, you're hearing that a patient is deeply concerned about something. You call them. You talk to them. Um, and this isn't, this isn't trying to avoid a lawsuit. I mean, I guess that's part of it, right? You know. But, uh, but I wasn't worried about that. Like, honestly, I was not worried about being sued or anything like that. Um, I was concerned that she, that, that I had heard through the complaint department that this woman was so, was so concerned about what happened to her during anesthesia that she, that she made a complaint about it. That's a big deal, right? For someone to go through that length, some, they had a, something happened. They had a really, really terrible experience. So I called, uh, I called her. Um, and I was like, you know, I'm, I was the anesthesiologist supervising your case. We met blah, blah, blah. And she was like, okay. I'm like, I'm like, tell me about your experience. You know, I, I don't remember. This was a while ago. This is years ago. So I don't quite remember. And I've had many conversations like this, right? This is the only time I've had, I've called a patient afterwards that, that, um, was concerned about something that happened to them. This isn't, it's happened so many times. Anyway, um, so she, what, what had happened is there was a, and I'll, I, I can get into the details a little bit. She had a, she, there was a disconnect with what her experience was and what happened. Meaning her experience was kind of terrifying. And what it was is the, the mat, the, so when we send someone off to sleep, you, you put a mask over the mouth and nose with hundred percent oxygen. And, uh, when we put that on, she felt like she just couldn't breathe very well. And that is a, sometimes that's a common complaint. Sometimes when we put that mask on, there's a uh, sometimes people, whether it's them feeling claustrophobic or, uh, they just don't, they just don't like how it feels. They, they don't feel like they're breathing very well. And it really terrified her. Um, and it was totally routine what we had done. It was totally routine. And then, and then I think as she was going off to sleep, there was like a tone of how someone said something or something like that, that kind of added to this fear complex that she was, that was being created in her mind. And, uh, and I don't, I don't even know specifically what it was that, that concerned her, but she started to be like, she was kind of, she was scared as she was going to sleep that something was going wrong. Um, which I, I, that what an awful experience for her to have. I, oh. I, I, I know people can have that experience as they go off to sleep. And I, I try not to have, you know, I try to do everything I can so people don't have that experience with that they're terrified that they think something is going wrong as they're going off to sleep. Can you imagine that? Um, and anyway, and then to a sugar on the top of this, of her experience, she woke up and she had an IV in her foot and that, that she couldn't handle that. She, she thought something went really wrong, like that she almost died because that she woke up with an IV in her foot. And that no one told her that she would have an IV in her foot. 
So I explained to her what happened. I explained to her, you know, the process of undergoing anesthesia. And then I explained to her that as she went off to sleep, we needed to put another IV and we tried on her hand. This is when after she's asleep, we tried on her hands and her arms and she was kind of a difficult stick. So we eventually just put one on her foot and then went on with the case, which is fairly routine. Sometimes that happens. Sometimes you got to use a, a vein in someone's foot. And then once they're awake and done, you just take it out. So I had a night, I had probably talked to her for about 45 minutes and uh, everything was fine. Um, but it was just taking that extra time to understand her experience. And so imagine if I, and she felt much better. Imagine I didn't have that conversation with her and she was so terrified. And she said, she literally, I forgot about this. She said she would, uh, and I, I heard from the surgeon who did the case that she didn't want to ever have surgery or anesthesia ever again because of this experience. Right. And that's exactly what I was talking about earlier, uh, you know, earlier in this podcast. Um, so by talking to her, just taking some extra time, um, she felt much better about things. Um, yeah, like much better. Everything was, was totally resolved. Um, so it's really, really important to engage in patients in a, in an authentic way. Just be real with people. It's not, a, it, the, the tone of voice that you use is so, so important. You don't use a tone of voice that you, that you, like you work in customer service. Talk to someone like they're sitting on your couch in your living room. You're having a conversation with them. You just had them over for dinner, and now you're just having a chat. That is how you should talk to people. That's how you should talk to people in medicine. Because people, I've mentioned it before, they're really good at knowing when they're being, like, BS'd. When someone's just, like, trying to um, placate them and appease them and move on with their day. People are very good at that. You know when people are doing that with you. And patients know. They, they know it. They're very good at that. All right, now let's talk about a story. I'm going to share a story that's different. <laughs> Uh, I probably share, it's probably like, uh, like my ego bias. I probably share stories that make me look good. <laughs> right. Um, but it's not like I, I like, I don't do things perfectly all the time. Right. Um, actually. Okay. So I'm, so I'm going to share a story. Actually, I don't think I didn't do anything wrong in this story either. Um, but let's just share This is a different story, a different take. Okay. So I had a, pa- this is when I was in the IC, the cardiac ICU. And I had a patient who had uh, some sort of cardiotomy, some, some sort of a sternotomy, some surgery on their heart. I forget what it was. Anyway, so she was recovering. It was like post-up day one. And the nurse comes to talk to me and say, hey, I need to, uh, this, this patient is very upset about their pain regimen, about what we're getting, giving her for pain, for pain. I was like, okay. I'm like, that's an easy thing to talk about. I will give her, and you know, in my mind, I'm like, I will give this patient whatever they want because they just had heart surgery and they're in pain. Um, so th- I'm like, this is a, this is a no brainer. So I go on and talk to this patient. <laughs> I was in there for an hour, probably uh, about uh, pro- at least 45 minutes to an hour. And this patient was so upset and it was so difficult to get to why she was upset. It was so extremely difficult to understand what was going on. And she wasn't like in a post-op daze or anything. She was, she was with it. You know, it wasn't, she wasn't like delirious or anything. And I, I, the, the details, details are so muddled to me right now because it was so convoluted. I don't even under, I still at this, to this day, don't understand what she, she was so, what she was upset about. Um, but it, you know, she wanted some oxycodone and I offered that or maybe cat, I don't even remember. I seriously, I don't remember because it's such a blur because it was so confusing. And anything I said, just uh, like to try to reconcile or to be like, yeah, we'll do that. She got so upset about, and I even said something, there was something I said that upset her so, oh yeah, yeah, okay, now I remember. I remember one of the main reasons she was upset. 
she was so terrified. She, she felt like the nurse had not come enough, soon enough to give her pain medication, that she suffered in pain. Um, and I definitely recognized that with her. I was like, and, and she said, I do not want to leave the ICU until my pain is totally controlled. And I was like, that's fine. You know, we can keep you, I'm, you know, I can keep you here even for another day to, to help with your pain control. And she was like, how can you guarantee me that when I'm on the floor, uh, you know, or, or like the, the surgical wards that, that a nurse will come and give me pain medication because they're not, they're even less responsive there. Cause it's not the intensive care unit. And I was basically like, you know, I was trying to be real with her. And I was like, I don't know if I can guarantee that you that. And then I said something to the effect of like, you can't, I didn't say it like this, but this is how she heard it. Like you can't stay in the ICU forever. I know I didn't say that, but that's what she felt. Right. Um, like I'm pretty sure if you recorded this conversation, I don't think I said anything that would, that would have been that upsetting to anybody but she was very upset because she was suffering she was in pain she was suffering in pain and she wasn't feeling heard and that was coming causing even more trauma for her and she was bawling i mean she was really upset and really crying and i i did not help at all she was so so angry with me and she even said something like I don't know what, like what I had said to her is one of the worst things. I don't know. It was so, I was, I was so blown away by this conversation because I could, I could not, we were not communicating effectively and she was so upset. And I was like, we will, I was like, I'll keep you here for another day. Well, I I was like, I will, I will make sure your pain is controlled before I send you out of the ICU. Like I was like, I was, I promise you that. And she didn't believe me. And it it was, the damage was done. I mean, it was irreparable. And, uh, so I, I think the point of sharing with that story is there just there can be breakdown in communication despite your best efforts. And you're you're not always gonna come off like you're a compassionate, caring individual. And there there was total distrust with this patient the whole time she was in the ICU. Um and it was unfortunate because she she actually she became so hostile I didn't even want to talk to her about her pain control anymore. And I basically she almost kind of lost my um man, like my amiability and my friendliness, because I was like, I don't know what else to do. Like I will come and treat you as a patient, but I don't, I don't, I, I going the extra effort and trying to, uh, to console you and trying to understand you has, has only made things worse. So it was like demotivating to me. I don't really know what my point is here. I mean, I know it's sounding like I'm blaming the patient and maybe I am a little bit. I don't know. I don't know. You can email me. But uh, it was it was very difficult conversation and it was a very difficult time. And, we, you know, her pain was fine from my perspective. I, maybe she was suffering from her perspective. And she did leave the ICU like a day later. And uh, anyway, I, I, I guess my point is, despite your best efforts, it, you, you still can, from, through the patient's eyes, really fail at, at having them be heard and understood. And I really tried. I, I, you know, I tried, but it, it just didn't work out. Now let's talk about... Uh, preoperative, um, pre-medication, you know, anti-anxiety pre-medication. So, um, I am liberal with it. I give it when anytime anyone ever needs it. So people can hide their anxiety really well. Sometimes some people are really overt with their anxiety, like preoperative anxiety. They're very overt. Some people hide it really well. Like they don't want to, you to know that they're, that they're anxious. Like they're embarrassed by their anxiety. Um, and I know that they are because like, I'll go talk to them the pre-op and they seem totally relaxed. Now, if I notice someone is a little nervous and I'm, I've gotten, I think I've gotten good at recognizing anxiety in people. 
I will, I am proactive. I don't say, I, I, I'm proactive. I don't wait for someone to ask for, um, so we usually we give, in the United States, we give midazolam, which is a benzo, benzodiazepine, IV midazolam. It's also called Versed. Um, I'll give that liberally preoperatively because it, it's a great medication. It gives, uh, it makes you, it makes, you know, it hits the same receptors that alcohol hits. So it makes you feel loosey goosey and relaxed. All those, you know, those viral YouTube videos, a lot of them where people are like acting all drunk and stuff is probably a lot of it times. It's probably benzo on uh, benzo on board like midazolam, but it makes you feel night like a couple beers deep makes you feel good. It also gives you uh anterograde amnesia, meaning once you give it, you often have memory loss while it's in your system, which is good. So you don't, you may not remember other events while you're, before you go off to sleep. So I will, when I recognize anxiety in patients, I offer right away. I'm like, do you want something to relax you? I always offer that. And not everybody takes it. Some people do, some people don't. But sometimes when I don't see that, I don't automatically offer it to everybody. Now, if anybody asks, I always give it. That is my opinion. I have colleagues and people elsewhere that, that don't want to give it. They're like, oh, well, it delay. I've heard the reasoning, well, it can delay their discharge. My response to that is, so what? The patient experience matters. And for someone to be suffering with anxiety and on the verge of a panic attack before going to the, op- before going to the operating room, you treat that. I don't care if it, it delays their recovery, you know, waking up. I do not. I don't care. I don't care. Their, their experience matters way, way, way more than, than being delayed going home. Uh, now, obviously, being, them being safely, they need to be safely discharged. But my response to that is I don't care. Their, their experience matters more than them occupying a bed in our, in our recovery unit. Like, give me a break. Uh, what was I saying? Oh, yeah. So the reason I know sometimes people hide their anxiety is, like, I go talk to them, and they're like, oh, yeah, they're great. They're super chill. And I'm like, okay. They look, they're, they're fine. And then I bring it back to the operating room and I'm about to send them off to sleep and they're a wreck and their heart rate is like 120. Like they're super, they're just super, super anxious. I'm like, whoa, they were really anxious this whole time. And I had no idea. And that happens all the time. It happens all the time. I'm just like, wow, I didn't know. Um, but I, I offer upfront freely when I, when I detect that anxiety in people, because I, I don't want people to be a wreck before going to surgery. It matters. The patient experience, my whole, I guess my point of this podcast is, Patient experience matters. Their experience that they're having matters. It matters to them, right? Because anxiety is a form of suffering. So it matters to that person. And then it matters to their their longitudinal care for them coming back for a surgery, coming back to seek medical care. You want patients to have as good of experience as possible for their benefit. I'm not saying like being in the hospital is good all the time, whatever. but, But if someone has ongoing chronic disease, chronic illnesses, they need surgery, they need medical care, whatever it is, they need to seek medical care, they need to feel comfortable, they need to feel heard, they need to feel like they're, they're in a, commu- a medical community that they trust. So important. Oh my gosh, that's so important. Do you know how many times, you know how many times you, I open up a patient's chart who's getting surgery, and they're like 65 or whatever, and they have no medical history? And, you know, someone's first conclusion could be like, oh wow, they're healthy. No, no, no. It's it's because they haven't sought medical care their entire lives, and they probably have ongoing undiagnosed medical problems like coronary artery disease, um, or peripheral artery disease, or un you know diabetes, and they just don't seek medical care. That is probably more likely what's going on. Why has that person not sought medical care their entire lives? The reasons are legion, right? There's many, 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 many reasons people do not seek medical care. Uh, one of them being cost. Um, one of them not, you know, not having, not, not being insured. And another one could be not having trust and being, having anxiety, having trauma, having a phobia as a, as a child, you know, 
just one meaningful and interaction with anybody, with you right now, if you're a healthcare worker, just that one interaction. Say you're, say you're a, you draw blood, right, in phlebotomy in a, in a lab draw. And a patient comes in and you're just awesome with them. And, uh, and you care about their experience, right? Just getting a blood draw, right? That's a big, that's a huge deal for a lot of people. Just getting a blood draw. Just coming in, getting some blood drawn and leaving as an outpatient. That is a huge deal for many people. Having that needle enter their body and then watching blood come out. Whoa, that could be unbelievable deal. So that one person, that phlebotomist who's taking that blood, just going, just going a little extra mile. It's not even an extra mile, right? It's just doing a tiny little thing, just being a little more friendly, being a little more understanding, have a little more, uh, your tone matters, not being condescending, being understanding, and trying to make them as comfortable, asking them questions, open-ended, trying to make them hurt. Like that one interaction, that could be like, well, maybe that wasn't so bad. Okay, maybe I'll go back to my primary care after I get the results. <sighs> These things matter. I know they do. They matter for people. I know they do. They like, it's very important what I'm talking about. I think <clears throat> now just for a minute, let's talk about children, um, you know, pediatrics. So I don't do pediatrics, but, um, uh, often, uh, very rarely do I do, I, I do pediatric anesthesia. I don't do any pediatric, um, critical care. And so for those that are not familiar, so for, with little children, um, you know, when they, when say they need to come in electively for an operation, we do, and to put them down to sleep for surgery. So, okay. For an adult, you put it in an IV, right. And then preoperatively, and then you bring them back to the operating room and you send them off to sleep with like, usually like propofol or some other sedative through their IV to send them off to sleep for an adult. But children don't like needles, right? Like the, they, they don't do well. Usually they don't do well with putting in an IV. So instead, as a as routine, we, uh, like a standard, we do a gas induction, meaning we bring the child back to the operating room and we put a mask over their mouth and nose and we start a volatile anesthetic, a gas, which kind of, which smells bad, right? Which smells like, I don't know, nail polish, worse than nail polish. And we usually, sometimes we'll, we usually put like a flavor in the mask, like some oil, like a you know, bubble gum and blueberry, whatever. We, and we have the, the child pick what flavor they want. And then they breathe that gas in and then they, that's how they fall asleep. And then we put in an IV and then, you know, put in a breathing tube, all that stuff. So that's routine for children. It's called a gas induction rather than an IV induction of anesthesia. So when, for, for this, this is still a distressing thing for many children, right? Think about a three-year-old, a two-year-old coming back into a operating room and then, and then strangers, who have masks on, right? Because we have masks on in the operating room when we have when we have sterile equipment that's open, we have masks on. So they come into this room, this cold room that's totally foreign, and a bunch of strangers with scrubs and masks on put a put a plastic mask over their mouth and gas them down, right? This is not a, this is still a, a very highly potentially um, traumatic experience, right, for a child. And not not always, right? Sometimes it goes just fine. So it's all it all depends on the child. And, uh, so there's a, to, to mitigate this, to make this better, there's oftentimes you can give child, a a child midazolam, like orally, like an oral suspension, like a, like a liquid medication in the preoperative to make them a little more, um, you know, not care about things. And I loved doing it when I did pediatric, when I was a resident and I did pediatric anesthesia, I loved one of my favorite things was to get kids to give kids midazolam and then just see them basically drunk. I mean, they're basically, I mean, they, it's basically kids that they're acting drunk in it. For one thing, it's absolutely hilarious, um, and it just makes everything better. Uh, so that is an important thing to do, an important thing to offer. 
And then, in my opinion, an important thing to offer is to have the parents come back with the child um, to be there while they go off to sleep. I think that is extremely important that their parent is there. Um, and honestly, if my child were getting anesthetic, and I, it, and this depends on hospital to hospital, right? The poli- this policy. I th- it should be more widespread. I don't think it's universal. But if I were going to have surgery, if my child was going to have surgery at an institution, I was going to be like, can, can I come back while they, get off, while they go off to sleep? And they say, no, our policy is no. I would not have my child get surgery there. Absolutely not. I would go back with my, with my daughter, have her sit in my arms while, while, while we put, put that mask on. Well, I put the mask on, right? We, I think li- allowing the parent to put the mask on is totally fine and safe um, for them to go off to sleep. Parents should go back with children. They should be there present. To ha- Again, this all leads back to what I'm talking about. We should, we should create the best atmosphere possible for all patients when, when they have medical interventions so they do not have trauma so that they can so that they don't have obstacles to seeking medical medical care throughout their lives i think it's very important now when i have a a little bit older children i give them the option say i even a 12 year old 15 year old a lot of times children that get surgery they they have a complex medical history and they have they they can have um a very hard relationship with medicine to begin with right so you know someone if a child has been through through the medical system a lot through their lives they can have a very complicated relationship and so i will offer them i'll be like hey do you want an iv because i here's how i I do this to every time i treat them like like they are sentient beings with which they are children can make their decisions with help right allow them to make their own decisions Um, because if they are part of the decision making process they're going to feel better about things. They're going to feel safer. They're going to feel more oriented, right? Being in, having involving them in the in the decision making is extremely important, right? Any parent knows that, right? If you want to, if you want your child to do something, <laughs> you don't just say, "Hey, you got to take a bath." You say, "Hey, do you want to? Uh, you know, we need to take a bath tonight, but you know, we can do a bath, or we or we can go and clean your room, or we can do, you know give them options." So anyway, so I give them options. I say. I say, you know, we can either give you a poke with a needle right now, and then you're done. You'll go off to sleep with that. Or you can come back and kind of smell some stinky gas. I'm like, what do you prefer? What's worse for you? And kids, you know, depending on the age, all the time, they'll pick the the IV. And I will personally put in the IV um, because I want them to have good experience. Anyway, so that's very important. Just just patient anxiety and addressing it and taking it serious and not dismissing it um, is extremely important for many reasons that, that I've outlined. All right, let's move on to a nonfiction uh, book review. Uh, this is called this. The, this book is called The Storm. Uh, hang on, let me bring. It. It's called The Storm Before the Calm: America's Discord, the Coming Crisis of the 2020s, and the Triumph Beyond by George Friedman. Uh, when was this published? 2020. It's about 250 pages. So, in a nutshell, this book is trying to retrofit a narrative, and I will let me let me discuss that. So I read this book with skeptical interest, but found that it ultimately failed based on cherry picking historical events, economic and social trends to force a narrative on the reader. And here's the narrative that the U.S. goes through an 80 year cycle where the federal government's role changes and a 50 year cycle of socioeconomic change. The author argues that these two major cycles will be changing over at the same time in like 2028. And he predicts very ill-defined social and economic turmoil, but ultimately promises prosperity going forward. Now, I do not have a problem with someone coming up with a narrative to serve as a thought model. I think that's totally fine. 
That's why I had interest in reading this book. I think thought models like that uh, to help you know to help you think about things and and reduce problems. I think is great. This can be really useful, and I and I enjoyed hearing about it. Well, uh, you know, I enjoyed reading about this narrative that that this guy was saying. My issue is the just unflappable certainty that the writer believes these things will come to pass based on his own confirmation bias and endorsement of American exceptionalism and basically just armchair speculation speculation and moralizing. That's, that's what he does in this book. The author starts off with an uneven historic account of the beginnings of the American Revolution and then continues a narrative thread that helps support his hypo- hypothesis of these, these cycles of history. It's strange that Major events that don't happen to coincide with his timed cycles, this 80-year and 50-year cycle, aren't, according to him, they aren't the heralding of a new cycle. One would think that, like, 9-11 might be the beginning of a new federal government cycle or a socioeconomic cycle. Or how about the, you know, 2007-2008 financial crash? That might that might have be the beginning or the ending of a socioeconomic cycle. But maybe not. I don't know. You can argue these things. I'm just saying... He cherry picks what he decides is the beginning and the ending of a cycle, right? He thinks the last federal cycle began with the New Deal era and FDR, and the last socioeconomic cycle changed over in the 1970s. So I do think Friedman understands pretty well the major forces that drive American institutions and politics, and he can give a fairly balanced analysis during uh, many portions of the book. But the author's true opinions show with how much he loathes liberal technocracy. He states that since World War II, we have been in the age of Ivy League technocrats who rule as these like blubbering, complex, and siloed entities, and they don't communicate with one another and are failing under their own bureaucracy. He casts technocrats you know, as like the dominant force and authority that drives federal institutions. Well, I think I think he makes a lot of sense. Uh, like I don't I don't argue that point. Uh, I think he makes a lot of sense complaining about the overwrought and out of touch technocrats. He gives them way too much emphasis and leaves out the more important problem, state and corporate collusion. It's bizarre that the author doesn't even mention how enmeshed the corporatocracy is with the state and, and, federal, and federal government and regulation agencies. I mean, he doesn't mention it once. Rather than living under the reign of technocrats, we're actually living in the age of minimal regulation where federal rule has become incredibly impotent. He doesn't recognize this at all. He, he does a good job recognizing the unwanted and corrosive effects of concentrated wealth, but not once does he discuss how this influences the function of the federal government. The, the author does not once mention Citizens United. One of the, probably the worst ruling, well, I don't know about that, a ruling that has fundamentally changed our democracy. He doesn't mention lobbying or regulatory capture. And I just, it's, he's simply wrong about the tyranny of technocrats. And he lost a lot of credibility with me. He also makes the same tired and false arguments about GSEs, government-sponsored entities like Frank and uh, uh, Fannie, that they're responsible for the 2008 financial crash when the lion's share of the bubble was clearly unregulated, private, predatory, and subprime loans thrown into mortgage-backed securities. The GSEs <laughs> were a tiny share of that market. They did not cause the financial... I cannot believe how much I have to explain this to people. Government policy did not cause the 2008 financial crash. It, the vast majority were private subprime loans. They were, regu- they were predatory loans, and they were thrown into mortgage-backed securities. That caused... The, it was not government... Spon- it wasn't GSC loans. Anyway. Uh, so, 
And this is all just further evidence that the problem is not just technocrats, it's unfettered markets. He also cast the U.S. as like a reluctant empire, which is which is a pretty gentle analysis of a, of a country intentionally at war its entire existence with the abject goal of global hegemonic control. The United States is not a reluctant empire. It is a very deliberate empire, in my opinion. <clears throat> Obviously. Anyway, okay, here's the big issue with this book. The solutions, okay? He literally says we just need people with, quote, common sense without qualifying, qualifying that at all. I'm sorry, but that's not a solution. That's just him complaining about, like, I don't, I don't know what, he doesn't even, he does not talk about what common sense, I don't know. <clears throat> common sense is highly subjective. <laughs> I'm baffled. This is the, the foundation of his solutions, that we need people in government with, quote, common sense. When it comes to climate change, he basically says, I'm paraphrasing, but this is what it basically says. Uh, I'm pretty sure it's happening, but I don't know what to do about it, so I won't include it in my prediction model. Okay. <clears throat> and here's the kicker about a solution for demographic collapse, which is, the, you know, the dropping fertility rates and aging population. This is what he says. I'm not joking at all. He literally says older people shouldn't be allowed to vote in the future. <laughs> that is bonkers. What is he talking about? You can't bar people from voting based on their age. What is he talking about? So not only does this author not have a crystal ball, I don't think his, his, his predictions will come to pass. He's not even correctly diagnosing our current modern problems. Anyway, I don't recommend this book. It's called The Storm Before the Calm by George Friedman. Don't read it. I read it so you don't have to. All right, let's go on to some questions here. Here's a question from TikTok from uh, Jefferson S. Raskin. I'm coming up on four years in anesthesia. I guess they're a resident, and I still can't get my monitored cables from getting tangled together by the end of the case. Any suggestions? <laughs> uh, just cope. It's hard. It's so what. What this person is talking about is, you know, in anesthesia we have a lot of cables that go to the patient that monitor. Right? We don't really have anything that's wireless. Uh, EKG monitor and, and pulse ox probe, and blood pressure cuff, and there's more things that we put, can put up to a patient. IV cables, and then if you're in cardiac, I uh, you know, uh, cardiac anesthesia these didn't war things like a swan uh line into the neck lots of stuff like that how do you keep it straight i don't really have a perfect solution for you um one of my here's one thing when you flip someone that goes prone you know when you flip someone to prone or you move them over to another bed or something like that sometimes it's better to just completely disconnect all of the cables and then move them and reconnect them i do that when i have prone patients it's way way easier to keep the cables straight but honestly this is just something <laughs> You just have to deal with this. Is, I don't have, I really don't have advice. This is just an inherent issue with uh, anesthesia, just keeping all those cables. And it's important. This isn't, this isn't um, an OCD thing. I do not have OCD, but I do in the OR, and you should. If you work in an OR, you should, you should be OCD. You should be very uh, obsessive about all the details. And this is an important point, having cables tangled. This can get in the way of, like, providing, you know, quick care. Like, where is the IV? Oh, I need to give him medication real quick. Where is this cable? Is it hooked up properly? Like having things organized is extremely important and knowing knowing where things are. But I don't know. You just got to come up with your own thing. Have a standard where you think this cable is, where that cable is for, you know, particular patients. Um, and uh, yeah, I don't know. That's all I got for you. That's, that's a hard question to answer. I don't have a solution for you. All right. One more question. This is from CJ Miner. This is on TikTok. What keeps you going every day? Uh, <clears throat> so... I, I, I'm pretty, <clears throat> I'm a pretty like, I'm a lucky person. I, I am a person that is not prone to, to depression or, or other mental illness, um, in the face of bad, hard things going on. 
I think I won the genetic lottery and I don't have any childhood trauma, right? I have parent, I have good parents. I don't have any like trauma in my life. Not really. Um, and I have a, a really amazing supportive wife and I have an amazing little girl. Obviously that's what keeps me going. My daughter is the most amazing thing ever. I love her to death. I can't, I think about her constantly. I miss her at work all the time. I love coming home and I spend every moment with waking moment with her. Um, obviously those things keep me going. That's basically it, right? My answer doesn't have to go any, anywhere beyond that. Um, but writing keeps me going. I love writing fiction. If you've listened to my other podcast, I love writing fiction. I love writing. I don't write every day, but most days I write a little bit here and there. Absolutely love it. I love reading. I have, reading keeps me going. Reading nonfiction, reading fiction, sci-fi and fantasy absolutely keeps me going. Uh, and then video games. I love video games. Right now, me and my wife have been playing um, Hogwarts Legacy. And it is so fun. It is so awesome. Um, and yes, I've separated the art from the artist in this case. I don't think boycotting does anything, by the way, if you want, any, if you want my opinion on that. Unorganizing, unorganized boycott does nothing. I think it's pointless. Uh, anyway, that's there you go. There you have it. Okay, for those of you, uh, I'm going to do, I, I'm done with the podcast. For those that are not interested in a, I'm going to do a fantasy book review, and then we'll be done. So if you don't care about fantasy, you can have a good day. Thanks for listening. Um, for those that care, um, let's do a let's do a, oh, a, one more book review real quick, and then we'll get out of here. All right, I'm gonna review. Uh, it's an indie book. Re- it's a, by an indie publisher. I think or indie author. I think uh, I think he's German. I've uh, I've uh, I'm friendly with him on Twitter. Um, this book is called Dreams of Dying. It's by Nicholas Litzau. Last name is spelled L-I-T-Z-A-U. Dreams of Dying. This was published in October 2020. It's 728 pages. Uh, this book was, you've never read anything like this. It's, vi- it's got vivid world building, complex characterization, and really amazing social commentary. I was made aware of this book from one of my favorite book reviewers, Patrick Leo, who, <clears throat> if you're into fantasy, you've probably heard of him. He's, he's become, he's a, a book reviewer who I'm also friendly, friendly with in Indonesia. He's reviewed one of my books called, uh, my book, Dark, Dark Theory. I asked him a while ago if he would review it and he, he obliged me. Anyway, he's an awesome, awesome guy. Really outstanding guy. You should follow him. Petrick Leo. P-E-T-R-I-K Leo L-E-O. Anyway, so I was made aware of this book by him. And he mentioned it as one of the best books he's ever read. Um, so needless to say, I, I picked this up pretty quick. And I'm glad I did because I found a really well-written indie book with great pacing, haunting atmosphere, dynamic world building, and, and really complex characters. A bonus was finding provocative commentary about capitalism. Uh, and like wealth disparity and the dubious virtues of rugged individualism. I want to emphasize that this is not the focus of the book. And it's, this book is not just like some contrived thing, uh, you know, negative polemic against capitalism. It's not what this book is. This book is about the characters, it's about the world. So first with the world building, it was just delightful. It was awesome. This book takes place on an archipelago built upon the labor of a proletariat class working and toiling under the fist of a, like a cabal of magnates. That's kind of the setting on top of, uh, you know, onerous taxes and terrible public policies designed to create even more agitation from the labor class. The people are exposed to environmental hazards and toxic chemicals with no access to healthcare. <laughs> Sounds kind of familiar. Um, there is a kind of mental magic system that has to do with like uh, dimensions, different dimensions. While some of the details of this were explained, it still remained unclear to me, which I didn't mind too much. I thought I thought the author pulled it off pretty well. The characters are fantastic. There's a character Jespa and Lysia and Kua, and they're really well fleshed out. The romances are not straightforward. <laughs> they're messy. Things get messy really fast. 
and they get even more complicated by the end of the book. Do not expect classic character arcs here. The author does a good job of keeping these characters very real. Jasper, the main, Jesper is his name, sorry, in particular is a difficult character. What I mean is he has like a really tragic past, which fills him with self-doubt and makes him quite unstable. He is engrossing, frustrating, and also a, a tragic character. A huge component of this book is how someone struggles with mental health, and maybe more importantly, how one copes with depression knowing that there are no tangible solutions. The author put a lot of care into handling this, and I must say he did it a really beautiful job. I think this book will relate with um, and legitimately help with a lot of people who struggle with similar problems. The overall plot was awesome. I love the twists and turns of the story, and the, and the dream sequences were so creepy. It, oh man. <laughs> um, the author definitely took a couple pages from the screenplay of Inception, but I, it's fine. I didn't care. It was really fun to read. I'm a big fan of the ultimate message and philosophy of this book, which is ideology is destructive. Pragmatism is the only solution that results in change. This message really resonated with me. If, if you know anything about me, I always talk about how ideology is bad, that we should not have we should not anchor ourselves to ideology. That's how we get manipulated. I've never read a book like, like this. Um, I highly recommend it to any fantasy fan, but any lover of good fiction. I'm looking forward to reading more from the author. Um, and by the way, it's based on some game that I'm totally unfamiliar with, like the world, and it didn't affect my enjoyment of the book. You don't need, you, if you look up this book and you're like, oh, it's based on this world, this some game, I have no idea what that game is and it doesn't matter, you don't need to know. Right, so it's a great book, I highly recommend it. It's called Dreams of Dying by Nicholas Litzau, L-I-T-Z-A-U. Highly recommend it. Go out and pick it up and support an uh, indie author who's a really nice guy. All right. That's all I got for you. Uh, email me at icudoctorecmo at gmail.com. Gmail Please email me with ideas for topics because, as I said at the beginning of this, I, the reason I don't always do podcasts is because I get bored with myself. Talk. I'm literally sitting in my car in a parking lot right now. It's not. Sometimes I just don't have the motivation to just talk to myself into a microphone. <laughs> Uh, and I don't think I, sometimes I just really have that much to say. If you give me ideas and topics and I end up, I'm like, Ooh, I'll do that. that. That'll make, that'll force me to do a podcast. And also uh, all of you that you get, you'd nudge me on TikTok. I see your comments. You're like, Hey, are you going to do a podcast soon? That does make me do a podcast. <laughs> it makes me feel guilty. <laughs> so do that. Guilt me on TikTok. Cause it does make, that's why I did this one. Cause someone a few days ago was like, Hey, just a friendly reminder that you have a podcast. And I was like, Oh yeah. Um, so you can do that. You can bug me there. Uh, and then I'm on Instagram, which is just my, I just mirror the content from TikTok. It's, I, I see you doctor TikTok. It's the same stuff on TikTok. You don't need to follow me on Instagram. You follow me on TikTok. It's, I literally put up the same content because I do, do not have the time and energy to create content specific for social media. I am not a social media person. I have no idea what I'm doing with social media. It's not, I don't, anyway, whatever. All right. That's all I got for you. Thanks.